and welcome to Parkinson's Pathway Pal, Tuesdays with Teresa. I'm Teresa Jackson, your podcast host. Today, my guest is Dr. Sonia Mather. Dr. Mather is a family physician from Toronto, Canada, who resigned her medical practice following a young onset Parkinson's disease diagnosis at age 27. Having lived with the disease for over two decades, she now spends her time writing, educating, and advocating for those living with Parkinson's. Dr. Mather works with organizations such as the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the Davis Finney Foundation, the Brian Grant Foundation, Parkinson's Canada, Lake Ridge Health Foundation, and she's co-founder of PD Avengers. She is also an author of the patient education and medical blog, Unshakable MD. And she has authored two books, Shaky Hands and My Grandpa's Shaky Hands. Welcome, Dr. Mather. Thank you so much, Teresa. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I just appreciate your um, willingness to share with our audience your expertise and your experience in living with um, Parkinson's. And I think because you are a physician and you do have Parkinson's, you bring a unique perspective for our audience listeners. I read uh, somewhere that you had written, whether it was a blog or something else that I'd written about, uh, read about you, but I did read that you said you must be an active participant take control, become empowered in order to live well with chronic disease. I think people who are in inherently tenacious seem to just face this disease with a different type of attitude. How have you found that to be true? Well, Teresa, I think, I think it stands to reason that in order to live well with this disease, you have to be an active participant. To be a passive bystander and sort of let the disease happen to you and other people take care of your symptoms, it's not going to work. You can't really live well or optimize your quality of life with that approach. Um, you have to sort of modify the things that you do have control over. We obviously don't have control over our disease diagnosis. That obviously is not something we could control, otherwise right. we wouldn't be sitting here. But we do have control over other variables in our life, like our, you know, our diet, our exercise, you know, lifestyle changes, stress management, and things like that. And that we have to actively engage in in order to live well with this disease. Some may say audacity. How did you describe it? I think um, I either use self-efficacious or tenacity. Tenacity. Yeah, I was thinking audacity wasn't the right word. <laughs> the tenacity piece. Um, for me, that has been a big thing. And I think my husband calls it more stubbornness than tenacity. But, um, you know, that that feeling of, of really needing to push forward despite what's going on to really push yourself beyond what, what you think your limits are. And it, it may seem... Um, may seem to some people like you're pushing too far at times. And I'm not saying to push yourself over what you can tolerate, but just, you know, on those days you don't feel like getting up, sometimes you just have to push yourself to get up. And it's not an easy thing to do, but we all need to do it. So we all have to really take control over our medical management, our lifestyle choices, and, and know that we can, we have to try and optimize our quality of life. That's, that's the only choice. Yeah. What I hear you saying is you have to be an active participant. You can't be passive in this disease exactly. because if you are, it will take you over. So um, any diseases like that, right. Or any stressor yes. in life, you can let yes. financial troubles overtake you. You can let marital troubles overtake you. There's any, any challenge that we face in life. We have a choice to make at that point. So true. It's funny that you said the word stubborn in place of tenacious. Um, I was interviewed recently for a night of inspiration with 110 Fitness. Oh, lovely. And, yeah. And um, when they interviewed my family, my daughter said, some people describe her as tenacious, but I use the word stubborn. <laughs> it's funny that you also use that word. 
Um, When I do public speaking, I talk about the need to reconcile your reality with your possibilities. Mm. For me, I don't think that this means that you can't have a fulfilling life, but it does mean that you need to analyze your current reality and then build strategies that allow you to accomplish the things that are important to you. I read on your website that you said at some point you have to surrender your fear of the future and begin living your present. Tell me more about what you mean about that and what that might even look like for someone newly diagnosed. Right. Um, Yeah, that's a quote I've used quite often. And what it means is that fear is kind of like an emotion that anchors you down. It it sort of um, drives you into a position of helplessness because you're so worried about what's going to happen. And you're so worried about what's going to happen that you don't enjoy what's happening, so to say. I mean, Michael J. Fox has a great quote. He said, if you worry about something and it doesn't happen, then you worry for nothing. And if you worry about something and it does happen, you've worried twice. So what's the point, right? Um, And it's it's only only natural because everybody's experience with this disease is so different, right? Uh, My prognosis is not going to be the same as yours. My progression isn't going to be the same as yours, nor will our symptoms, nor will it be the same how we react to treatment. So there's so much unknown and no one can tell you what your disease journey is going to be. So there's that fear of the future, which is normal. And when you're newly diagnosed, it's even more heightened at that point because you don't have any experience to to sort of depend on for for your um, own sort of thought about what this journey is going to be. Um, So you really have to understand that, you know, the cure is coming, hopefully, you know, I'm very hopeful about that, but until there's a cure, (laughs) good, but until there's a cure, it's all about quality of life. That's right. And only we know what our quality of life is. And if you keep focused on fear of things to come, you're not going to have great quality of life now. And I think that's vitally important. Yeah. You're really robbing today Mm -hmm. uh, in fear of tomorrow. Exactly. So yeah, very good. Um, I also read where you shared a paraphrase from Phillips Brooks, um, who is a noted American clergyman and an author who said, don't pray for an easy life. Pray to be a strong person. I love this. I love that. Yeah, I fell in love with that quote, too, when I when I read it a number, a number of years ago. And that's that was probably I mean, when I started out, I wasn't optimistic, Teresa. I was just mired in my own um, fear and, and, um, uh, just, just upset about the whole situation that I was faced with this, this diagnosis at, at such an early age, I was actually expecting my first child when I was diagnosed and just finished my red residency in family medicine was about to start my practice. So it was a time where I should have been experiencing a lot of joy, but all I could focus on was the negative, what this disease was seemingly taking away from me, you know, the, the sort of dark cloud hanging over my head that I really wasn't able to escape. And I, I began to become a very negative person, get into a very negative headspace. And at that time, I, I mean, normally I was a joyful person before this all happened. And I began to see myself in a light that I didn't like that much. And I began to understand that I wouldn't wake up one day, you know, all supple and, and, and you know, no tremor. I mean, this was going to be part of my life and I had a choice to make. And so I began to say to myself, well, there's no point in wishing what can't be wished away and, and tackle it head on. We, we only have control over how we face these challenges. And that quote really stuck with me because I thought, yeah, I've I've been praying for the wrong thing. (laughs) You know, I can't pray for someone to take this away, but I can pray to be a stronger person or have the coping skills in order to deal with it. Yeah, that's really important. I think it kind of actually comes back around to the quote that I was said earlier of, 
sometimes you have to, or not just sometimes, but when you're faced with something like this, you have to reconcile that reality with mm -hmm. what the possibilities are and find the positive in between. Exactly. Yeah. And everyone's positive is going to be something different. Mm -hmm. What improves my quality of life won't necessarily improve yours. So for some people, their quality of life will be improved if they can go back to running marathons. Right. And then someone right. who's maybe later on in their disease, it's getting to the end of the driveway. Yep. Both are important goals and both are their, you know, personal quality of life goals. And we, we each need to define that for ourselves. Yeah. They, you know, I, I said in my book how this disease is designed or is uh, not designed, but described as a snowflake disease and, you know, such a beautiful word for such an ugly debilitating yeah. disease. So uh, everyone's, everyone's journey, everyone's medication, everyone's progress, everything is just unique and individual. So tell me, um, I know you, you were practicing medicine. I wondered how, um, did you see many Parkinson's patients in your own medical practice? Um, I saw, I had a few in my medical practice. It's a family practice. So it's everybody from newborns to elderly. Um, I did see a few during, in my practice. And that was a very interesting thing because I, I felt quite confident in their medical management, but sometimes it was hard to see because I would see people at different stages of their disease and wonder to myself, you know, first of all, I was hiding it because I didn't disclose to my patients or my extended social circle for about the first decade of my disease. Oh, wow. I was kind of sort of hiding my symptoms and not being able to share that with these people. And at the same time, you know, wondering, was that going to be my, it's only natural to wonder, you know, am I going to progress to this stage or, or yes. what's the going to look like for me at that age? So it was an interesting, uh, interesting situation to be placed in. Yeah, I know. I've often looked at people that are like five years out and some people you really don't know when their medication's working well that they even have it. Whereas other people are almost to the point, even at five years, mm -hmm. in wheelchair. So again, snowflake disease. Um, since my own diagnosis in 2019, my mission has really been to raise awareness around the need for education and disease management for the newly diagnosed. Um, while there are reputable organizations out there with valuable information, I found that it was my experience and from a Parkinson's survey that was done, um, many other people's experience that about 50% of people that are newly diagnosed do not receive information about how to manage their disease at the time of diagnosis, which is mm -hmm. shocking to me because if you, you know, if you have any other diagnosis that's big, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, they would never send you out the door without extensive education, or at least the opportunity to gain that education. So that has really been my mission since I was, um, since I was diagnosed. Right. But my question to you as a physician is how do we help physicians understand the importance of sharing that information at the time of diagnosis? While it's one thing to say, you can exercise if you'd like, it'd probably do you good. It's a whole other message when a physician says it is imperative. It is like medicine for you to exercise. How do right. we get this type of information or how do we encourage or um, educate physicians in a way that they understand how important that is? Right. That's a great question. And it's a matter of the relationship between the patient and the physician. I mean, the physician, I understand from their perspective, being one that, you know, right. you're, you're often in a time crunch and you're often, you know, juggling many, many things and trying to just look after the medical needs of the patient 
um, as opposed to some of the stuff we should be counseling patients about. The other thing is that, you know, for the physician, it's probably the thousandth time that they've delivered diagnosis and they fail, they start to fail to understand that it's actually the first time that the patient's hearing the diagnosis. And that's where the, you know, the disparity comes in. Um, how do we educate physicians? Well, I think some of it is, um, some of it is advocating for yourself at some point, but that doesn't really come into play when you're newly diagnosed because you don't have you don't that. Even know what to advocate for. Exactly, you don't even know what to advocate for. Right. A lot of it comes back on the responsibility, I think, of our community and the, the support organizations that are there. It's very hard to change. I mean, I think not that it shouldn't be made aware in the medical community that this is a need that the patients seek that is not being fulfilled and, and individual physicians should try and, you know, um, upgrade their time or, or, or um, attention to those aspects of the patient, because that's very empowering for patients to learn about, like, say, exercise. Well, that's something I can do. You know, that's something I can control, have some control over. So I'll do it. Um, but I think it comes back to the patient community and the patient responsibility and patient, different patient organizations to identify that as a need and then take up the responsibility to try and fill the gaps if possible. Um, and that's why there's so many great organizations and, and people like yourselves who are willing to put themselves out there to educate others that, that are, find themselves in the same position that they were in a number of years ago. Um, but I think that patient education is definitely um, power in this disease because as you said, it's a snowflake disease. So you have to become educated in your own version of this disease. You also have to become educated on how you respond to medications, how you respond to certain treatments. Um, and also you have to become educated on what to communicate to your physician. Because as you know, we don't have a biomarker for this disease. It's not like we can go in and they can pump up the blood pressure cuff and say, oh, your Parkinson's is this stage or this, this moment we have to do this right. medication because of that. So you have to become educated in what you need to tell your physician in terms of motor, non-motor symptoms, what your side effects are, when you're timing with your medications and so forth. So you have to become educated in your own disease for your own knowledge, as well as what you can communicate to your physician and also what research opportunities are out there for you. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important to become educated about what, what's involved in clinical research, what clinical research would be near you or, or within your spectrum in which you can participate. So education is really powerful with this disease for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the message, the, the initial message from the physician can be short but impactful. And I think yeah. that for me personally, as a health and wellness, certified health and wellness coach, I right. would like to see curriculum built and taught at maybe initial diagnosis or two weeks after initial, after you've kind of had time, a little time to kind of get your head around a few things Yes, in the doctor's office, but it wouldn't be taught by a doctor because- I mean, let's face it, their, their value is in treating, diagnosing and treating patients. Right. You can, you know, that can be offset to some other level of um, care person. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I think, and that ties into the whole concept of building your own team, right? A team approach mm -hmm. to management of Parkinson's disease has been shown through clinical studies to be better uh, than just sort of one-on-one, -on -one, like the physician and the patient alone without any supportive uh, right. healthcare professionals. So I think that's a very valid point that it may not be in the um, the uh, sort of uh, jurisdiction of the physician based on time constraints and that sort of thing, but certainly could be delegated to a nurse practitioner or a counselor um, 
who might be able to take over that role because you're right. I mean, patients kind of are given a diagnosis and sent out the door, maybe with a prescription, maybe not. And it's a lifelong diagnosis, you know, it's a chronic illness and, and, and uh, it needs to be discussed and dealt with maybe not the same day, but, you know, definitely within the first few, few weeks. Yeah. When I was diagnosed, I was basically handed a prescription and said, I'll see you in six months. And it's Mm -hmm. not that it's just not that kind of disease. I mean, there's too much, there's so much that can happen in that first six months, but yeah. And it depends on the physician as well. Absolutely. Excellent physicians out there um, that that really do do that for their patients. Yes, absolutely. My, my personal um, family physician is excellent and I have now partnered with a movement disorder specialist and he provides education all the time. I'm very blessed, but um, I just know from the survey done in the Parkinson's Foundation and my own personal experience for the first two physicians that I went to, it was was starkly different. I'll just say. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one thing that I have often wondered about, um, I have a lot of friends that are either physicians or uh, nurses or some level of provider. One thing that um, that I have heard having many friends in the medical field is that there's really just not enough education around Parkinson's during medical school. And I, I'm only going to make the assumption that that's because there are so many diseases, especially for a generalist or a family physician that has to have, you know, have knowledge on many, many topics, that there's just not enough time to get, you know, deep into the woods. But um, I'm just wondering, you know, how much, how much education did you find yourself receiving during your, your own, what's your own experience with that? Well, my answers might be a bit different than someone more recently diagnosed in my situation, because that was a long time ago for me. And at that time, not even to mention medical school, but neurologists in general were on a very different sort of path in terms of their understanding. It was all about dopamine. It was all about a motor disease. The non-motor symptoms were not really mentioned. It's all about managing from a dopamine replacement perspective. So the knowledge that I got in medical school is very limited to that. Um, a lot of unanswered questions, which we still have a lot of unanswered questions, but a lot of lack of understanding. Um, and I'm not sure what it is like today. I think you're right. I think there's so many diseases that have to be covered that um, a lot of in-depth knowledge into any certain disease comes more at the um, level of training that happens after medical school. Um, so in the residency program, depending mm-hmm. on what you think, in the subspecialty program that you end up in. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that again goes to show what the public's image of this disease is, right? It's still the old, old, Thing that I used to see the stooped man with this, with the you know with with the, the travel chair and the trimmer yeah exactly yeah. Um, and that you know looking at me and you is a very different disease than we know so yeah. education is important uh, I think uh, having patient experience is very important physicians that are coming up um, but I'm not really sure how much information they get at a medical school level well what some of my, and I'll say most recent, like in the last, maybe they've been practicing five years or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, that may, it could have changed in the last year. I don't know. But um, prior to that, also very, very limited, like two to three days on mm-hmm. the subject. But, uh, and again, it just comes down to having so much information that has to be learned mm-hmm. in, in that period of time. Um, I think the general, con- sorry, Teresa, I think the general ahead. concept of listening to patients, I think is an important skill. And that's something we learned, but I think that's something that needs to be emphasized in terms of uh, educating physicians. 
because that listening to patients in the rapport and the bedside manner goes a long way and across many, many different diseases and especially with Parkinson's. So I wanna shift back a little bit to kind of what we were talking about in the beginning. As a certified health and wellness coach, I do a lot of work around mindset and resiliency. And I read a quote from your website that said, in the fight against chronic disease, knowledge is power and attitude is everything. How do you maintain a positive attitude, especially on those days that are just hard? <laughs> As I mentioned, I didn't tell anybody for 10 years and that's because I hadn't come to an emotional acceptance about it. You know, I had a, uh, an intellectual acceptance of it. I knew I had the disease. I understood what it would entail. I could envision what would happen, but I didn't really emotionally come to accept it. And then that sort of came after that period of time I told you where I was becoming such a negative, pessimistic person. What I've learned in my few years with this illness is that it's a choice. It's a daily choice. Optimism is a choice. It's not an easy one, but it is a choice nevertheless. Mm -hmm. And we have to sort of choose our reaction to the challenges that we face. Um, and then really, if you think about it, isn't that much of a choice because what is the alternative, right? The alternative right. is to, to, to not accept and to sort of lie down in defeat. And I don't think you or I or anyone probably listening wants to go that route. Um, so optimism to me is a choice. Having a positive attitude is a choice because I feel better when I'm optimistic and, and happy and trying to be positive. It's not easy. I have bad days. I have really I bad know. days. And, those, and that's okay. I let myself have those bad days because we're only human. We're going to have them. And to chastise ourselves for having a bad day doesn't make much sense. Right. So accept that and, and try and, you know, um, do those self-care things that I need to do in order to feel better um, from an emotional and, and mood perspective. And, and try to make the next day a better day. Um, and it, so it's a matter of really talking to myself, having a lot of self-care. Now, there are situations where I don't want people, people to feel that they, if they're unable to get out of that funk or out of that pessimism, because depression and anxiety as a clinical diagnosis are very common in our community. Mm -hmm. And they may need, you know, when you get into that situation, you may need some other medical support, such as medication or counseling. So there's situations where you can't sort of talk your way out of it. But surrounding myself with family, trying to keep active exercise, you know, everyone says exercise, exercise, exercise. I, I'm no different than that. Exercise is an extremely important part of my self-care routine, not only from a physical point of view, but I feel better emotionally when I do it. Yeah. Um, so I try and keep a good self-care routine. I try and choose the positive whenever I can and uh, allow myself those bad days are okay. Yeah, I do the same. I think our, our mindset, while it doesn't change our disease, as we said before, it, it can ch change what we focus on. And, That's you know, there's, there is a, there is a, an experiment that people do where you, you probably heard of it, but if you said, look around your room and see everything that's blue, look at the texture, what's it smell like, what's it feel like, what's it taste like, and close your eyes and recount all those things and then open your eyes and tell me what was green in the room. And you may not be able to do that. And it's because we, we weren't focused on green, right? We were focused on, right. Right. so when we're focused on those more positive things, um, it, it helps drive how we, um, you know, the intake that we have in it, and it helps right. drive how we process our day and our, and our disease itself. And again, like you said, if someone's experiencing depression, that's a whole other, whole other thing. Yeah. Um, but for, 
for someone that's not experiencing that, our, our attitude, I think, and our mindset can certainly affect our um, quality of life in a positive way, for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So as a physician, I'm curious, you know, I have now interviewed several physicians from neurosurgeons to neurologists, movement disorders, family practice physicians. And the one thing that I'm always curious about is um, for those that I have, I have interviewed that have Parkinson's is how, how do you deal with the diagnosis? Like, how has it made it harder and how has it made it easier from a physician? You know, how do you silo those or what's the impact of being a physician versus someone like me that's not a physician that has that diagnosis come to them? That was a long <laughs> that's a great question. No, no, that was a great question. Um, for me, it has positive and negatives. Um, the positive is that I'm able to understand my disease. I feel from a medical perspective. So I'm able to manage my medications, know what a side effect is versus a, a complication of the disease. So sort of able to have that medical knowledge has been helpful, um, to me. Um, and, and probably, um, knowing some of the medical research that's coming about, it allows me to have a hopeful look at, at what's going on or a realistic look at or, or goal in my mind of what's happening and from a research perspective. So that's all been positive. The negative is sometimes you get into your own head and you sort of see the potential, you sort of develop these, <laughs> these scenarios in your mind of where you might end up because you've seen sometimes the worst thing um, or worst consequence. And it's sometimes you have to remind yourself that if you hear hoofbeats, it's not zebras, it's, it's horses. And uh, it's because- oh, that's, that's brilliant, I love that. <laughs> so I've had to, you know, quite a few times say, go back to the horses, this is not a zebra. Uh, situation. But um, so, yeah, I think it, it's had this positive and it's had its negatives. The positive thing is that it's allowed me opportunity to become involved with a lot that I, I, I really cherish right now, which is a lot of patient advocacy and education and research and, and that sort of thing. So it's really become a passion of mine. And I think my medical background has helped with that. Yeah. Well, you certainly come from a unique perspective for sure. Before we close today, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience or want our audience to know? Um, I think the one thing, especially when you're newly diagnosed, that you need to know is that you're not alone, mm. that there's a whole community out here to support you. Um, there's a whole community of researchers and clinicians that are doing really devoting their life work to making sure that you have a cure one day or you at least have better treatments and optima, optimal quality of life. And they're working hard and the, the, the research is, is really expanding rapidly. There's a lot of out of the box thinking happening, a lot of things that are coming up on the horizon that will hopefully end up doing that for us. And you also have a whole community of other people that are going down the same journey with you and reach out because Parkinson's disease, whether you disclose to family or friends or not, is a very isolating disease. It can be. And um, I think we've all found with this pandemic that we've been sort of isolated whether we wanted to or not. And so that sort of aggravates people that are, we're already feeling that way. But there's so many ways to reach out, whether it's online or in-person support groups and in-person in exercise groups, you'll always find someone who's going through the same thing you're going through. And that kind of support that you get from a peer that's in the same life situation as you is invaluable. So always reach out, don't become isolated. Don't, don't face this alone because you don't have to. 
I think that's sound advice. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Mather, for sharing your time today and sharing some of your story with our listeners. And we thank you for listening, and I'll see you Tuesday. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, I really appreciate that you uh, gave your time to me, and I know our listeners will appreciate it. I'll send you an email when your episode will air, which will be probably several months from now. I'm, I am um, actually going to Hawaii for the summer. Oh, so, lovely. Where in Hawaii are you going? Um, I'm going to Honolulu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. My husband, um, he works with the government. And he had an opportunity. This is actually his third or fourth deployment there, if you want to call it that. He had an opportunity to go to Hawaii for about four months and it ended up being three and a half. And so I would have gone the whole time, except we have small dogs and you can't take dog. Well, you can, but they have to quarantine like months. And so so I'm going to go in the middle of his time there. So he'll be gone three or four weeks ahead of me and then I'll come for six weeks and then he'll be there another group. Oh, okay. Excellent. Six weeks. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So anyway, we're, we're trying to record up through, so we don't have to record any until the beginning Absolutely. of fall. So, Absolutely. but I will, it'll be a few months, but I'll, I'll send you an email and let you know when no your worries. episode will air. Excellent. It was great. Thank you so Thank much. You. Teresa. Thank okay. you so much. Bye-bye. Have a good day. You Bye. too. Bye.